0: Hi, I'm Jake Parker with the What's Your Story podcast. Here I talk with my guests about their life experiences, as well as current and long-term goals, and what gets them through the ups and downs. If you enjoy the show, please rate and subscribe. And don't forget to visit my website, jparkerfitlife.com, for access to my Instagram account, blog, and more. Today I'm talking with Mike Gibbs, Uh, My good friend has been on the podcast a couple times. We're going to be discussing some of the differences and intricacies between functional training as it relates to mobility, overall health, uh, and more, and contrast and compare that with the typical uh, bodybuilding-type workouts that we see a lot of times uh, in exercise programs today.
1: Sounds great, Jake. My name is Michael. I'm a nurse practitioner, strength and conditioning specialist, and a yoga instructor, and I'm so excited to be joining you today.
0: All right, Mike, why don't you go ahead and just to kick us off, kind of explain what exactly functional training is and sort of how that differentiates from the typical exercises that, that you would see people doing today. You know,
1: thank you, Jake. And you know, functional training is actually kind of a sticky term. And what I mean by that is it's gotten very misconstrued by the fitness population. So functional Mm -hmm. training is very simply something that makes you better at work, life, or sport. So if you're a firefighter and you need to be able to carry heavy hoses and move things around, functional training will do that for you. If you're a grandmother and desire to get out of a wheelchair and be able to hold your kids and walk, a good functional training program will help you with that albeit a rehab program, but it'll still be a functionally based rehab program. If you're an athlete and need to perform better in your game, functional training will help you with that. And if you are a soldier being able to rock or carry a pack that weighs 80 pounds for 20 kilometers day in and day out, mm-hmm. functional training is designed to do that for you. So functional training would almost look at everyone as an athlete and then give them athlete like attributes, mobility, mobility, Core stability, core strength, speed, agility, and athleticism, the ability to change directions and move and be coordinated, if you will. So that's really what we're talking about, functional training. This does not mean necessarily sitting on a ball. Uh, Functional Mm exercise could be a squat, very functional. It could be a deadlift. It could be a lunge. It could be a standing press. It could be taking an object from the ground and lifting it over your head, or it could be carrying something that's heavy from a location to another location or there's many other things that would be involved in functional training. But really the difference in function is it has to make you better.
0: Yeah. So how do you think that differs from the way that most people exercise? Is it just the fact that like we kind of talked about before we went on air that people are really focused on just the aesthetic and the look, you know, looking bigger, looking stronger and healthier versus uh, actually being healthier and stronger and uh, emphasizing mobility and things like that.
1: I think, it goes, I think that's at least half of it, but I think it goes a little further than that. So if we mm-hmm. look at it the way most people train in a gym, they go to the gym, they spend a lot of time on the bench press, which isn't the most functional exercise in the world because you're not standing, although it does mm-hmm. build core strength. So there is some value in the bench press with related to horizontal uh, pushing strength. Or they're doing a bicep curl or they're doing a lateral raise or they're pretty much doing anything they can to isolate individual muscles in the body. And by mm-hmm. isolating certain muscles, they can shape those muscles. The problem is, is just because the muscle gets shaped or becomes bigger doesn't mean it actually contributes to more strength. And that's why you can see often a 140-pound functionally strong athlete outlift a 240-pound bodybuilder, even if they're both walking around at 6% body fat, because the muscle itself has to be usable. I, li- I liken bodybuilding to a musician that's playing solo. That person can focus exclusively on their violin, on their guitar, on their piano. And they can be a master of the piano, for example. And that's great. Mm-hmm. And if your sport is piano, or for example, if, you are, if, if your world is only piano, then that's perfect. But if you play as part of a larger symphony, or if you're playing as part of a band, if you're playing the gar- guitar by yourself all of the time, or you're playing the piano by yourself all of the time, that the, the group, the band, the symphony, isn't ever going to be good enough unless the people actually participate and move and train together. Well, that's kind of the difference between bodybuilding, doing a concentration curl, which may work the bicep, versus doing a pull-up that works the hands, the grip, the forearms, the biceps, the shoulders, and the back. So one would be functional and be transferable to everyday life, and maybe the bicep curl mm-hmm. really does nothing for, for one's health at all unless you're doing it as maybe a stabilizer training. Mm-hmm. So where does that separation
0: between strength start, start to take place where you say that, uh, like the, the example you gave of an athlete, that's maybe 140 pounds versus a bodybuilder that's upwards of 240 pounds. You know, if they both have that muscle mass and I mean, obviously I think the bodybuilder has uh, strength up to a certain point. Where, where is that main separation taking place? That that's setting apart someone who is an athlete and trains functionally.
1: Well, it's, it's in a couple of different ways. So I hate the term. And I know, I know another fitness program uses it, ground to overhead, but mm-hmm. if you have to take an object from the ground and get it over your head, which is co- common a thing to have to do in life sometimes, how you do it, as long as you can do it safely and effectively is kind of irrelevant. So one could pick up the weight They could deadlift a 225 pound object from the ground. They can reverse curl it and they can press it over their head and that's fine. And I remember, you know, many, many, many years ago, someone saying, you couldn't possibly press this 185 pound object over my head. I was in my late twenties from the ground. And I said, of course I can. Mm -hmm. And I picked it up and I reverse curled it and then I pressed it over my head. Now I was big and I was strong, but I still had done a lot of other functional activities in my life because I was actively involved in martial arts. So I was doing bodybuilding plus martial arts. So I still had a functional athletic training component. So I was still able to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I asked some bodybuilders that I knew to try that and they couldn't. And it was really interesting because they might be able to deadlift it, although it looked kind of funny, then they might be able to reverse curl it. And when it came to pressing it overhead, they almost, some of them had the strength to take that 175-pound barbell from the shoulder and press it over their head while they were standing. But as the weight would we get over their head, you could see them actually trying to look falling back or tipping over because they didn't have the core strength to do it because they were doing a seated shoulder press by comparison and all these shoulder-isolated mm-hmm. movements, so they didn't actually have the functional strength of the core strength to stand up with the weight over their head. and That was really one of those things that were pretty telling to me. I even mm-hmm. saw a power lifter And I mean, we were talking about a strong guy. Powerlifters are some of the strongest people in the world. Someone that that I knew that could, at a body weight of less than 200, deadlift 700 pounds. He was extremely strong. And then I asked him to press the weight over his head. And somewhere around 155 pounds, his core wasn't able to hold the weight over his head. And that mm-hmm. really amazed me because, you know, the deadlift builds incredible core strength. The squat, the squat builds incredible core strength. But in powerlifting, the only upper bo- true upper body exercise is the bench press. And since it's not overhead and in the bench press, your core is completely supported by the bench. It kind of removes the core from most of the exercise. You could see that even powerlifters were struggling with that. So it really depends on... I like to see in functional training, I like to see a lot of single leg activities, a lot of smartly designed rotational training because in life we either have to rotate or we don't have to rotate or we want to avoid Mm -hmm. rotating. I like to see a lot of things over the head. I like to see some sandbag work if and whenever possible. A little bit of use of the TRX because the TRX can promote some really good mobility, but it can also promote core stability and core stability and core strength are different. Core stability mm-hmm. is kind of like how long you can hold the position. And core strength is the amount of torque you can actually either resist or be able to contain. So if you're holding a 225 pound object over your head, that's a pretty solid plank. If you really think about it, your body has to be in a perfect plank to do it. And that is a tremendous yeah. amount of core work. So and it's and the reason it's core is It's requiring the shoulders to work. It's requiring the lats to work, the traps to work, the rhomboids to work, the cuff muscles, like the rotator cuff muscles, the low back muscles to work, the internal and external obliques, transverse abdominis and and rectus abdominis, which most people consider core, but that's probably the smallest and least important muscle of the core. It's the way all those Mm -hmm. muscles really interplay together. So the biggest part of it is just, you know, essentially the
0: fact that all these muscles are, synchronizing together yes. whereas you know, people that it's basically the synchronization and you talk about bodybuilders being able to isolate very effectively, but then the synchronization is sort of where they fall apart.
1: It's really actually the synchronization or the neuromuscular connectivity, being able to recruit mm-hmm. and actually use more muscle fibers and mm-hmm. being able to get them so, to, to, to fire in time at the correct sequence.
0: Yeah. So when we talk about muscle size and muscle strength, that can oftentimes be similar but these these people say in the example that you were talking about just lack the the uh, capacity to put all this strength together and really have the muscle firing
1: all at once that's the majority of it and the other side is mm-hmm. there's there's something you can consider which is basically productive muscle versus sarcoplasmeric hypertrophy so this is actually where strength gets very interesting when one trains for strength they're generally training a functional exercise of on a lift, not an exercise, like something that you can put a lot of weight on. And they're training with low repetitions, generally less than five. And they're using perfect technique. And the reason you're training an athlete with five reps and under is you're trying to enhance their strength, but you're not trying to enhance their size because outside of sumo wrestling as a rule, it's not advantageous to the athlete to be bigger. The muscle Mm -hmm. itself takes a lot of oxygen to feed, a lot of blood to feed. So if you can have the same strength in a smaller body, you have much better ability to move and your cardio is going to be better. So the stronger you are at a given body weight is always advantageous to the athlete. So the athletes are trained with low reps and that builds this small, dense, very fibrous muscle tissue that is capable of extreme strength. Now, if you're trying to build size you actually need to do something different where when you train the muscle, you need to keep the time under tension or the time the muscle is actually working to at least 45 seconds. So when you're trying to gain size, you're ultimately training a different set of reps. You're training a rep range of six to 15. And that's actually Mm -hmm. training a slightly different type of muscle fiber with, and you're, and you're also training to increase the volume of the muscle, the capacity of the muscle, the glycogen capacity of the muscle, things to make it much bigger. And, the training for size versus strength, you know, typically don't correlate. And that's that's the other reason you're, you're, you're not getting the, so the strength factor. So it's mostly the neuromuscular efficiency, but also the type of muscle you're actually training and developing isn't designed for as much force. It's designed more for endurance.
0: Yeah, that's what I think is interesting, especially what comes to mind when you mention uh, like trying to maximize strength, but uh, being aware of Uh, not necessarily body composition, but just overall size. Like when you talk about your martial arts, you know, if if someone is say getting in a, uh, uh, some sort of competition or like fight say like MMA or boxing or whatever it may be, they have to be really, really aware of trying to maximize that strength, but also being aware of, you know, not having too much body mass so that they're, um, I guess getting the, the, most positive benefit out of the weight that they're at, if that makes sense. I think that that's just a, an interesting kind of dance that they have to do.
1: It is. And you know, I, I've, I've been born with a naturally very large muscular athletic body. It maybe it was because I started weight training when I was 14 years old. Maybe it was just that I was genetically big, but I can literally walk around at 225 pounds or greater at 8% body fat with little effort. It's just not that hard mm-hmm. for me to be in that size, in that shape, and I spent much of my youth in that shape. And I took a few years off of martial arts in my youth. And I, ultimately, I got hurt in martial arts again, which is why I don't. I trained to, well. Don't train the way I used to. But mm-hmm. two hundred and twenty-five pounds at eight percent body fat. No matter how much cardio I did, I got tired, and I got yeah. slow because you know there was only so much force I could move because you know, these are big functional exercises. I would throw a punch or a kick or a sequence of them. And I would sweat in the first 10 seconds. I would get out of breath faster than other people. And then when I would drop 20 pounds or even 30 pounds at that 185 to 195 pound place, I was not only almost as strong, maybe 10% less strong, but I could go for hours. And it was just... And when you start looking at the amount of force I could ultimately produce at a lower body weight and how nimble I was and how good my cardio was, all of a sudden mm-hmm. that extra muscle was uh, not something I really wanted to carry. Now, by nature, it's, if I'm not careful, I just gain muscle. So maintaining 200 or less is very challenging for me
0: because mm-hmm. I'm a
1: bigger guy. I'm six foot tall. If you look at my, like the size of my wrists and my knees, they're doubled out of a normal person. I'm just meant to be a big guy. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I don't feel well when I'm a big guy.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because that's sort of counterintuitive to what most people would think. You know, you think if you look at someone in the bigger and more ripped, you know, they look, you think that that would translate to better athleticism and, you know, functional capability, but it's not necessarily like you talked about. It's just hard to move around that much weight.
1: It really is. And, you know, an observation I've made, you know, with some friends, I've participated in many martial arts um, that were mixed martial arts by nature, but they were more combat arts like Krav Maga. And I do like to watch some UFC fights with some friends that are martial artists. And as soon as we see the fighters, if we don't know them, and I see some guy with really big biceps and really well-defined pecs, I usually can tell them that this guy's going to lose. And they're, Mm -hmm. they're always like, but he looks so good. And I said, yes, but when you throw a strike, you're rotating from the hips you have a very loose arm until the last possible second. I said, and what needs to happen is that bicep needs to relax and that tricep needs to contract at the last second. I said, and this guy's bicep is too big, so it's not gonna, his arm isn't gonna be able to relax as fast as it needs to be, and he's not gonna be able to hit as hard as the next guy. I said, plus, even though the guy, you know, walked around 20 pounds heavier, dehydrated himself to cut the weight, and then is now in the fight, I said, Mm -hmm. this guy's gonna tire. And at my friends for a while were always telling me I was crazy. And then 90% of the time they'd look at me and they're like, oh my God, you're right. The guy with the biceps and the pecs just couldn't make it. And if mm-hmm. you look at the fighters that are really good, you know, they're they're a little less muscular. They're all muscular. And they all look really healthy, but they have, you know, they have a good strong, you know, gl- look around their hips. They're going to have a relatively big butt for the size of their body. They're going to have big trapezius muscles. They're going to have muscular shoulders really muscular lats compared to their body frame and their mm-hmm. arms aren't going to be big. And cause you know, it, but they're going to have, you know, a lot of muscle. And even if they're not the leanest th- things, you'll see these well-developed serratus anterior muscles and their obliques are going to be pretty, pretty well developed from all the rotation and all the anti-rotation and you'll see their lower back musculature and you'll be like, okay, that's what a strong person looks like. Or look at a gymnast. You'll see the same thing.
0: Yeah. So what are, what are the biggest keys then to cardio respiratory fitness as it relates to something like fighting, you know, where you said that your cardio improved a lot when you, you lost some of that muscle mass and didn't have as much bulk. What are some of the biggest keys there
1: training? So here's the way I like to view training and I, everything we do in training should enhance everything else. If we mm-hmm. enhance anaerobic capacity, we automatically enhance aerobic capacity. But while generally speaking, training aerobically, we almost re, re, we we reduce our anaerobic capacity to some degree. And if mm-hmm. we do too much endurance training, what we ultimately do is we tend to actually kill our strength, speed, power, agility, and coordination. So we don't want to do that either. So what I typically like to see, you know, in a training session is a good mobility, a dynamic mobility warm up. And what you're doing is you're slight, you're warming up the body you're activating the muscles so they're woken up from the time you're ready to train and you're generally, you're increasing your range of motion. So that would generally mean start with like joint mobility, things like neck rolls and things like that side to side, up and down, roll your wrist in in circles. And then I'd like to progress that to something like lunges forward and backward and lateral and drop lunges. And in that process, you're really loosening up the hips, the ankles, the knees, pretty much anything that you would need in your training session. And then from there, I typically like something, some other thing that'll maybe warm up and, as well as develop the power and athleticism, maybe some med ball throws. And then after that, if there's going to be any power training in the session, like a, like a power clean, for example, or a dumbbell mm-hmm. snatch, one to two sets in the beginning, maybe two sets. And then, because you're not, you're not really trying to, to crush the body. You're just trying to train a little bit of power and then you would have some strength training. And you know, if it's a strength phase, you might have like some deadlifts by themselves or some squats by themselves, or if it's a mobility stability phase, you might have a superset of some lunges with some dumbbells, and then maybe some Romanian deadlifts or some kettlebell swings, and you would do say two or three uh, circuits of that, and then you might move on to uh, some rotational training maybe a med maybe a med ball lift and chop maybe a cable chop superseted with a cable lift and then i like to see people when they're done that do one set of say assistance exercises and and for example if it was a push pull day that could be some atomic push-ups on the trx it could be uh some endurance rows single arm rows on the trx and it could be an mm-hmm. ab exercise that's thrown in there and then uh that's their training session and then give them 14 minutes of metabolic conditioning or cardio. And if it's a heavy day with a lot of, a lot of inherent cardio there, that could be just 14 minutes of, or 15 minutes of just sitting on the bike and, you know, relaxing at a, a, at a pace of 65, 70% of your maximum heart rate. Or if it's a day where the training session has been light on cardio, interval training on the, on a bike. And by bike, I typically mean airdyne, rowing machine, running, Whatever is suitable mm. for the person and their lifestyle. I don't like to use running for athletes like martial artists or gymnasts, where they have a lot of impact on their joints. Yeah, because I they get enough. I prefer to use uh, an aerodine for most athletes or the rowing machine, based on you know how good their movement is. But you know it could be a two minute easy pace warm up. It could be five seconds max effort, thirty seconds easy, repeat for six to eight rounds, and that but make sure the total time is say fourteen minutes it could be a, it could be something like 5 seconds easy 10 seconds light 10 seconds easy uh, I'm, I'm sorry 10 seconds hard 20 seconds light 15 seconds max effort 30 seconds mm-hmm. light but the point is is the training I, we i like to see for my athletes is predominantly interval training unless they're endurance athletes and the reason for that interval training well, the interval training is quite interesting. First, it builds incredible aerobic and anaerobic capacity. And mm-hmm. two is the high-intensity training, and I've measured this on, on, on my labs and other, other people that that, that, were, that were following my, the kind of training program I was doing with them years, many years ago. We all had sky-high growth hormone levels because uh, the high-intensity mm-hmm. interval training raises growth hormone, which then you can measure as IGF-1 on their labs. So we're seeing, you know, I've seen at least on many people that were doing high intensity interval training growth hormone levels of that of youthful individuals as opposed to that of people that were really, you know, 40 or 50 years old, I've seen them with growth hormone levels of Mm -hmm. 20 year olds or the growth hormone levels of someone that was spending a thousand dollars a month from someone prescribed that prescribed them growth hormone.
0: Yeah. So the other thing that I was curious about as it relates to the training we've kind of talked about is, um, expand on what exactly you refer to as the core, because I feel like a lot of people, you know, the typical person who's not highly educated in fitness might think the core, just the abs, the muscles that we can see, but obviously it goes far beyond that. So can you expand on, on what, what core training is and kind of how the core relates to all the exercises?
1: Yeah. I love that topic. And the core is defined by most strength and conditioning specialists and coaches is anything between from the shoulders to the mid thighs, mm-hmm. so that can, that's not rectus abdominis, which is the six pack that most people think of. It's every muscle of the trunk and the mid thighs. So if you're really thinking about that, how do you actually work the core? What the core does is it transfers power and stability from the feet to the upper body. Mm-hmm. So if you have a bar on your back and you're doing a squat and you're going to parallel and you're doing the squat with the correct technique, your core is heavily involved in keeping you from falling over. Oh yeah. Now, if you're doing a deadlift, your core is keeping you completely stable because you're ultimately holding the bar in your hands. But think about where your hands are connected. The hands are connected to the forearms, which are connected to the elbows, which are connected to the shoulders. So you're, Upper body is carrying the load of the deadlift, even though you're pulling it with your hamstrings and glutes predominantly. So every muscle in the entire body gets work. A standing overhead press, for example, provides an unimaginable amount of core work, plus it even enhances bone density because it's doing something called axial loading of the spine. A lunge where you're holding dumbbells in any way, core work. A rotational lunge with a sandbag, lots of core work. A kettlebell swing transferring power from from the hand, from the hips to the hands incredible amounts of core work. So for the most part to build a really strong core it's about unstable loads where your upper body is unstable not your lower body. Now, I'm not going to say that I don't appreciate the Bosu ball and, and and other balance trainers. I feel like they are phenomenal for balance training, which is great for athletes and proprioception training knowing where your body is in space and time. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't consider it core training. I would consider that other parts of a well-rounded athlete's training. Again, I my gym has a BOSU ball. My wife uses it all the time. She's a gymnast and she likes to do balance training. I think it's fantastic. I actually do some ankle and foot mobility exercises on it because I have some foot damage, and I think it's really great for that, especially when I do them seated and I'm just rolling around in circles. So there's a lot of validity in that. But if you're really talking about core training, you have to make your upper body unstable, not not your lower body. That should be firmly planted on the ground. Mm-hmm. And stay safe and the matter. Yeah, I think that we
0: forget that there's just so much more that goes into core strength than just the abs because, you know, that's the thing that we can most easily see.
1: Yeah, we all, we all get that. And, you know, and I even know martial arts coaches that are training people for their core by doing Lots and lots of crunches and sit-ups and all these Mm -hmm. other exercises. And, well, that's great um, to do for some core stability and to do for some muscle endurance, which is definitely still worth having, especially if you're a martial artist and you're going to throw 500 kicks in 10 minutes. But the point is, is you you still need the core strength. You need that strong and functional and powerful body. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So the other thing that I'm most curious about and I should mention that um you and I have talked and I'm going to uh start one of these functional programs that you recommended so I'm 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 uh, excited to see you know how that feels where I've typically trained in the strength and bodybuilding sort of realm and never a lot of functional type stuff but what I was most curious about in going through it and kind of thinking about the different aspects and thinking about what you talked about today uh when you talk about increasing you know, muscle strength and ability and functional strength. Um, how do you relate that to, you know, like caloric, uh, surplus? Like, is that necessary? Whereas, you know, I come from typically my knowledge is in bodybuilding where we talk so much about having a caloric surplus to add more strength and muscle size. Is that something that you really emphasize a lot? Or even if you're eating at maintenance or even below, can you still see a lot of gains in this, uh, Uh, Functional training
1: realm. Well, actually, that's where it gets interesting. Now, I have been a bodybuilder, and I have dealt with a lot of bodybuilders as patients and things. And if you're really thinking about the concept of lifting, lifting heavy and high volume, and then eating an incredible amount of food, getting some muscle, getting fat, and then going on a diet later, where you're basically causing a hormonal imbalance in your body. And now you're going to lose most of the muscle you gained along with uh, while you have to lose some fat. I I just never understood that bulking and cutting. I mean, I'm not saying Mm -hmm. I haven't done it, but I don't see the productiveness of it. if you're really training functionally and you actually are eating properly, which is, in my perspective, 30% protein, 30% healthy fat, meaning monounsaturated fat coming from olive oil, and 40% of your calories coming from good quality carbohydrates – things like a sweet potato or fruits and vegetables, your body's going to be able to burn fat for energy. And we all have, even if we have 10% body fat, we've got plenty of available energy. So if our body Mm -hmm. can burn burn fat because our insulin levels are low enough, we can make the ATP necessary to meet our metabolic needs, which means that we don't need to be eating so much to take care of our metabolic needs. We just need to make sure that we have a diet that has adequate protein, adequate carbohydrates, and adequate fat, And what will ultimately happen is we'll gain muscle. Now, the reason we'll gain even be more likely to gain muscle with the functional training at a given level of calories is we're raising growth hormone levels with high intensity interval training. And by ultimately Mm -hmm. doing that, we're setting up the body to gain muscle and lose fat simultaneously. So we don't really need to go crazy with the calories and mm-hmm. all the studies show that caloric restriction is the really the best way to increase longevity and health so at least of the oh, yeah. so i don't really want to say I was overeat to the point of uh causing too many calories so i would say dial the nutrition in with following a functional training program and because the hormones are going to help take care of it Now i'm not going to pretend and say you can be as big functionally training as you could as a bodybuilder because you know you can mm-hmm. but I would venture to guess that if you took the average person and you had them look at a martial artist, you had them look at a soccer player, you had them look at a quarterback that plays from football, you had them look at a, one of the, the positions in hockey where they're pretty athletic, and you look at someone from, uh, that's doing a lot of tough mutters at a competitive level, I bet most people mm-hmm. would actually like the look of that, those athletes. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. And that's the, that's the look of functional training. It does not have the real bodybuilding look where you, you have ten thousand veins you know everywhere, and you've got these big swollen muscles mm-hmm. everywhere, and the person looks tight and they can barely walk down the down the hallway. We've all seen the movies with the really muscular people, and and mm-hmm. that's how they really move in real life. So, I actually think the functional training look looks a lot better. But that's me personally, and you you have to you have to fig, figure out, you know, is that good enough? Now, personally, I would always choose to be healthier over looking healthier any day. Yeah. Because I've treated, treated patients for much of my life. And I know what people look like when they're ready to die. And it really takes a clot that's the size of half of a pencil dot to actually cause a heart attack or a stroke, which can kill us. Mm-hmm. So I'd want to spend my life, you know, making my heart as strong as possible and my and, my, and the rest of my body as healthy as possible to be less likely to have those problems.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you also talked about the importance of nutrition here in the uh, guide that you gave me. So not going too much into the weeds, from from what I've gathered, the really important things to you are having that mix of carbs, fats, and proteins every meal, and trying not to spike insulin levels too much. Are those a couple of the major components as I've seen them?
1: It really is, and you know, I've had the opportunity to speak with uh, Dr. Barry Sears numerous times. And Mm -hmm. I remember in 1985, I think it was 1985, my wife brings home this book that's called The Zone Diet. And I remember it was basically, it threw everything off of what we were telling our patients to do. And I initially looked at it and said, this is crazy. And then I read it a second time. And then I read the hormonal impact of the food that he was describing and I decided to try it. My patients were always asking me about every possible diet that was out there, so I tried the zone diet, and it was amazing. All of a sudden, I felt healthier than I had like ever, and I was always lean, but all of a sudden, I was leaner, but it wasn't that I was just leaner. It was that I no longer got hungry anymore, and I started to feel excuse me so well. And then I checked my blood and I was younger and I always had healthy blood, but it never looked like this. And, you know, I've had numerous conversations with Barry Sears and he's worked with 25 gold medalist Olympians. And for the most part, most of them eat less than 2,500 calories a day and including Olympic swimmers. And wow. I'm not saying that I've ever had success at 2,500 calories a day. For me, it was really around 3,200 for my health and wellness. But you know, everybody's mm-hmm. got to try it. But you know, I, I really do believe that for the most part, most people, if they follow that thirty percent protein, thirty percent fat, forty percent carbohydrates, plus or minus a few percentage in every direction based on their own body, most people feel that well, feel very well that way. And anyone that I've ever recommended that diet to and said at least try this for a week or two, they've always done well.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's obvious when I when I look at that too. You you stay away from any of the processed foods and things like that. And I think that even going beyond uh, what you've talked about, it's just so important to try to eat just natural whole foods, a lot of fruits and vegetables. You obviously emphasize uh, having whole lean proteins. I think that that will just take someone so far on its own, especially when you compare it to the typical diet that most people are eating.
1: It typically will. So if we look at, you know, saturated fat, it's inflammatory. If we look at the omega-6 fatty acids, specifically arachidonic acid that you find in red meat and egg yolks, that causes inflammation. There's less of it in Mm -hmm. grass-fed beef by far. But still, you know, but but I try and avoid the fatty meats. I try and get all my fats from nuts, olive oil, and avocados. And then I try and eat my proteins as close to fat-free as possible, except for fish. I do like fatty fish, and I think the omega-3s found in fatty fish are very good for you.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, just it's so it's so important to prioritize a healthy diet when it comes to, you know, as we've kind of touched on a couple of times, just thinking about longevity and health span and just being as healthy as you can for the longest period of time. Um, that's where functional training really shines. And I think that that's just really important for people to realize when you when you pair the diet with healthy and regular exercise, it's just going to make you feel so much better and have that longer health span.
1: It really will. And if we look back at a lot of the original bodybuilders from the 60s and 70s, we can see those that have really taken care of their health. Like I think I was recently I saw a video of Dave Draper, who's doing yoga mm-hmm. every day and he's doing some cardio. And he's still lean and muscular. He doesn't look like he was in his bodybuilding days, but he's walking around and he's, he's, he's like a young man. And then if we look at some other guys that are really focused overly heavy on extremely heavy weights to be above that 300 pound mark, you know, some of Mm -hmm. them are in really bad shape.
0: Yeah. It's just like, I remember, uh, Ben Pakulski, like a pretty famous bodybuilder from maybe like the mid two thousands. Who's really into, uh, just health span and overall wellness nowadays. He talks about how, you know, when he was hovering close to 300 pounds, even though you look really strong and ripped and muscular, it's still not healthy for the body to uh, be that high over its set point, even if you are carrying mostly muscle, which is sort of counterintuitive also to what people would think. Not that it's as unhealthy as if you were weighing about, you know, 280 pounds and being fat, but even if you are weighing, you know, 280 pounds or more, and you have a low body fat percentage as a bodybuilder, it's still not healthy for your body to carry around that much excess weight. It's still uh, hard on the body and the organs, etc.
1: It's incredibly hard on the body. So for one thing, every time we walk, approximately three times of our body weight is, the, is, the, is what goes in impact. So if you weigh an extra 100 pounds, every step you take is basically 300 pounds of impact on your joints. And that, but then look at your heart. Your heart can't get any, well, your heart can get any bigger, but it's a disaster if it does. So mm-hmm. the heart we have is designed to supply blood to our body at a reasonable size. If we add an additional 100 pounds, our body our heart now has to work harder to try and support that blood flow to our extra 100 pounds, which basically means one of two things. Either you can't move because you're, you're, your heart rate goes up to 110 because you walked up the stairs in your house and you just don't have much capacity in you. Or your heart has to work really hard And if your heart works really hard, what can happen is the left ventricle or the the pumping side of the body can actually get extra thick. And if the heart grows, it grows muscle, it grows inside the heart instead of outside the heart, then the heart can't fit as much blood when it pumps every single time and it causes something called heart failure. So when you hear about an athlete with an enlarged heart, it's a big issue. And you see a lot of enlarged hearts with bodybuilders because first their body's too big, the steroids they're taking actually raises their blood pressure and then the heart has to fight to push blood against higher blood pressure and against a bigger body. And now the steroids will make a muscle grow and a heart's a muscle itself. And so the heart makes them, the heart muscle grows both from the overload and the steroids. And now I, and I've seen heart failure with uh, bodybuilders. It's not that uncommon.
0: Uh, just wrapping up here. Um, I think that, like I said, I'm excited to try uh, the functional training that you have outlined here and just looking over it one more time um, just uh, for an outline uh, you have here the three phases being mobility in the first phase the second phase being enhancing stability and then the third phase uh, enhancing strength um, maybe you could give a few uh, key keys for each each different period and kind of explain the rationale behind your training it looks like uh, there's a few different rep ranges here a lot of 10 to 12. And then some in the lower five to eight, some upwards as high as 15. Uh, looks like training three days a week uh, each week as well.
1: Yeah, so we typically have about five phases. I know you're using what, what the program you're using, and, we, and as you go through it, we're happy to give you the additional phases. So mm-hmm. typically what happens is either you're in, one of two things happens when you see a new client. 90% of the time, they don't have the mobility to actually move properly through functional training exercises. So you need Mm -hmm. to spend about three weeks to really enhance their mobility and teach them the movements. The other 10% of the time, what you get is you get an athlete that's been training so hard for so long that they're walking around in an overtrained state effectively, in which case they can't get over it. So either you've got someone that you need to adapt into training or you've got someone that you need to, give some rest. So the first three weeks of the training program are really designed to either deload you or if you're out of shape, get you ramped up and get you at least mobile enough to start being able to move. Now, after we get someone more mobile, we never want an athlete to have mobility without stability. Mm -hmm. So then we start working on core stability. And it's not that much different than the first phase because that'll add some stability, but it's a little more. So in this phase, we'll typically have a little more complicated movements. We'll have some more complicated rotational training. We're really gonna be building, trying to build a a stable core before we load it up. And then once we start getting to the the strength training phase, that might be typically where we might progress from a lunge to uh, to like a a two-legged squat, like a back squat or a front squat, uh, because the Mm -hmm. lunge is really good for building mobility and stability. And then we might add the traditional deadlift instead of a Romanian deadlift or a kettlebell swing. And then we might start to include little elements of power training, such as a dumbbell snatch. And this phase is really about giving someone some real strength. And then after strength, typically I like to take that strength and give them some kind of strength endurance, which we would call work capacity. And we can give you a three-week phase for that too, happily. And Mm -hmm. what you're doing here is you're adding some volume. And you're doing that for about three weeks because you've trained them hard for strength, and that's great, but now maybe the body needs some recovery from the heavier weights, but we also want to make sure we're enhancing the cardio or the metabolic conditioning and giving giving some additional endurance. And the reason we're doing that is it, it makes the athlete better. And then after that, we would typically add three weeks of hypertrophy training, almost like bodybuilding but still functional. And we're doing that because if we can make the muscle just a little bigger then we can we can use that that additional size to function as additional strength. Because while I say it's a little bodybuilding-like and that we might be doing higher rep ranges to for mm-hmm. muscle growth, we're still gonna be doing functional exercises. They're, they're not gonna be like a concentration crawl. They're not gonna be a lateral raise. They're just a little more volume, which is necessary for size. And then typically we would end a periodization schedule with a, three weeks of power training. Where we're, which is typically what you would do for an athlete in their last phase too. And here it's where really where you're making someone be able to be explosive. So here's where you might be adding the Olympic lifting. Here's where we are adding a lot more explosive work with med balls, maybe some Indian clubs, maybe some sandbags. You're really trying to make that athlete either punch harder, kick harder, throw faster, whatever the, whatever their sport is. And then they would complete that phase. And then typically we would deload them and start basically at a phase one again when we start working on mobility and stability because you can't train hard for 18 weeks without uh, fatiguing the nervous system and once you fatigue Mm -hmm. the nervous system you either need to take some time off and that can be very useful but i but i've also noticed that sometimes when people take time off they don't come back or often when they take some time off they uh they might get a little on the lazy side or they take some time off and their body is just untrained completely. And they view time off as a chance to just eat really, really bad foods and get more mm-hmm. sleep. So I like to bring them back to phase one and, and let those three weeks of mobility training enhance whatever mobility was lost in the power and hypertrophy phase and give their body some rest, build some stability, make them stable. And with each time we push them through a cycle like this and we, ch- we may tune the cycle each time we really start noticing some gains. So I would say the first time you run through a functional training session, like the first 18 weeks, you will notice some strength, speed, power, coordination, and agility training. You will. But the second Mm -hmm. time you go through it, now that the body's used to the exercises and you're explosive, boy, that's when real results come.
0: Yeah. And uh, is the three days a week, is that, is that pretty typical?
1: Well, there's two ways you would train an athlete and you, you would either train them three days a week or four four days a week. And if you have the opportunity to do four days a week, what you would typically do would be an upper body horizontal push-pull day. And that would be a day that obviously would include some vertical exercises and functional training, but you might actually have a bench press and a bent row, for example. That's your horizontal type things that would be your two main lifts Mm -hmm. of the day. And then you probably would have a lower body pull day. And in a lower body pull day, these are things that are more related to deadlifts and kettlebell swings and things that are more hamstring, glute dominant. And then you would have an upper body vertical day. And these would be days where you'd be emphasizing things like the overhead press or the push press or the, the, the jerk. And you'd be doing more pull-up type things because you're focusing on vertical strength. And then you would have a lower body push day, which would have more squats and and lunges and things like that. So typically, if you have the time and the luxury, you know, a a four-day-a-week training program like that for an athlete that's got real good recovery capabilities is terrific. If you've got someone that has any other physical activities in their life, meaning you don't want to just do your training and then sit on the the couch for the rest of the Mm day typically like a three day a week program. And basically what you're doing with that is an upper body day, a lower body day, and then a full body day. And I like this because I, in my mind, I, I like someone to be able to do that and then maybe take a yoga class one day or go for a walk on the beach right. one day, or go for a long hike or take a martial arts class or two per week. I really want to or, or <laughs> learn to dance. I want someone that can actually do a lot of things and I strongly encourage them to, take place in activities that require the mind body connection. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, yes. Mike,
0: I appreciate you coming on to talk again. Uh, it's always fun taking your brain. I think it's, it's great because you have so much, so much different knowledge. I love talking to you. Um, we'll definitely have to talk soon, um, about all the, the new training I'm about to undertake, but, uh, yeah, if you want to leave us with any closing thoughts,
1: So sure, Jake, it's always a pleasure to be on your your show. I always love your blog and I love listening to your podcast. And I really like how you're really taking charge of promoting a healthy and well lifestyle. And I think it's fantastic. So I'm always happy to be on your show Um, as a nurse practitioner, strength and conditioning coach, and a yoga instructor. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. And anytime I can add or be on your show, it's a real pleasure for me. So thank you for having me. All right, thank you,
0: Mike. This has been the What's Your Story podcast. I'm Jake Parker. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and listen in to new episodes every Monday and Saturday. Also, give us a rating and review or share with a friend or family member you think might enjoy the show. I'm always looking for new guests. So if you or someone you know would like to come on the show, please reach out by email or Instagram. Both are easily available on my website, jparkerfitlife.com. Thanks.